Good morning. How's everyone? Good, good. You guys enjoying the weather? Yeah, most of you. Some of you are a little freaked out. It's okay. My name is Eric. If you haven't met me, we're so glad you're here. Uh, if you have any questions about church or getting plugged in, there's a welcome area out in the courtyard or uh, find anyone with a lanyard. We'd love to connect you to our church. Um, two quick things. One, um, I don't know if you know this part. We sang a new song there, um, but that worship song was written by our worship team. And so that was really fun and exciting. And uh, yeah, go ahead and say thank you for that. And, you know, one of, one of the reasons we didn't share that before the song is we wanted to make sure that we weren't celebrating us, but Jesus first. And that's one of the reasons we're working towards writing songs um, that reflect the truth of Scripture about God so that when you come, you can trust that the words to God are truthful and they're from Scripture. As we kind of see the culture declining and the options towards uh, worship, music, lyrics have just not been great. And so that's something we're excited uh, to work at. And then last thing is hopefully you were able to catch on to our last series that we took a little break in Matthew and you got to see all the pastors teach. That's a part of my heart is you'd see a plurality of leaders together and know that there's other godly men that love you, that teach and want to help you. And they teach throughout the week on Sunday mornings and would love for you to connect to that um, in any way you can. And it's good for you guys to get a break from me, right? Amen, right? I expected that to be the loudest amen, but here we go. We're back in Matthew chapter 17 and 18. And uh, if you haven't been tracking with the story, uh, it's important. Um, you have four gospels. They have a, some overlap and similarities, but they do have an audience. And in that audience, um, you're trying to get to a singular point uh, or maybe a couple points of emphasis. And so all through the book of Matthew, we're really gonna see two things. One, who is Jesus? We're trying to nail this down. Who is Jesus? The Old Testament is full of you know, there's going to be one who comes and crushes the snake. There's going to be one who sits on David's throne. There's going to be um, the sacrifice that God will provide on our behalf. There will be the suffering servant. And so he's answering that question, you know, who is Jesus? By the way, he's all of them. And then the second is, you know, what does it mean to be a part of the kingdom? What does that mean? The kingdom of heaven. And then that Jesus is the king. And how do you be a part of it? And what does it look like to be a citizen of heaven? And so you see all these imperatives. This is how you're to act and be and relate. And so we're going to pick that storyline right up here in 17 and 18. It's going to continue. And so I'm going to pray. And we're going to walk through this text and uh, thank Jesus for, for what he's done. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we're thankful that we get to come and just read from your word and it is called a, you know, a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And let's pray that you would um, direct our thoughts and our, and our minds, that you would settle insecurities and fear and anxiety we might be having. And let's pray that we would lock in to, to what you would challenge us with, that we would trust you, love you, and have more affection toward you um, than when we came. And so we pray for you to speak and for you to teach us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so here we are, Matthew chapter 17. And again, you're seeing this theme of the disciples trying to figure out who is Jesus. And they get closer each time. And then Jesus will pose, say something like, hey, I need to go and I'm going to die and I'm gonna come back on the third day. You remember the last time he said that, Peter tells him, no, you can't do that. And Jesus rebukes him, he calls him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. And so they're struggling with this idea that Jesus is going to leave because they have it in their mind like, no, but you got to sit on David's throne in the temple, make all the nations come and bow, and we're going to get to be a part of it. Okay, so they're struggling with this. They're kind of 
idea or reality is not fitting with what Jesus is telling them. <clears throat> so Jesus starts at verse 23. He tells them, hey, they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day and they were greatly distressed. Okay, so the text tells us they're stressed out about this. If Jesus leaves, like what does that mean for us? And so they're pondering that and they're freaked out. And then apparently, boom, it's gone. And they're like, well, who's going to be the greatest? All right, they're on to the next thing. And so what we want to do is just kind of walk through this. Uh, you know, what is Jesus teaching us in the meantime? Because as they're learning more about who he is, there's really th three things we see in this text, right? Uh, about causing an offense, who is the greatest, and kind of how do we protect the faith? And so he moves right into Okay, there's a guy that walks up and he asks for tax. So again, this is a part of the culture and they would ask for money to come into the temple and that money would help, uh, you know, clean everything, pay the people who work there, pay for the sacrifices, all of the things. And what's interesting about this is I think we get the idea of giving an offense backwards. We think that God wants us to be non-offensive when it comes to morals and truth but it's very okay to be offensive with our opinions and attitudes. That the Bible somehow is fine with me yelling and being a jerk, but it never wants me to share the truth and tell people they're wrong. The Bible is actually the opposite. The Bible says you're gonna be offensive with the truth because people don't wanna change. They don't wanna hear that Jesus is the only way to God. They don't wanna hear that things are wrong and, and God decides what's right. They don't wanna hear there's a heaven and there's a hell and there's no third option. But over here, your attitude and your ability to be a good citizen and, and play by the rules, it matters. Therefore, you are to not give an offense. Okay, so this is the setting that happens. So Jesus is very simple to them. He says, hey, would you make a son pay to a king? We're in verse 25. Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon, Peter? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? from their sons or from others. And he said, this, verse 26, the sons are free. It's interesting. He's asking the question and this proves by him asking the question, he still doesn't understand who Jesus is fully. Why is that? Because the temple, where does God reside? In the temple. So that makes it his father's house. So if it's his father's house, it's also whose house? Jesus's house. It's the son's house too. You imagine getting charged to go back home today after you leave church and someone charges you to go in your own house. And so Jesus is like, well, okay, it should be free because Jesus is the son of God. Again, he's always teaching them. This is who I am. But rather than say, you know, I don't need to pay this. I'm the son of God. He says, okay, Peter, we're going to pay this tax. And why are we going to pay this tax? Verse 27, to not give an offense. See, the Bible walks through over and over again that we're to be good citizens here. When he's asked, hey, do you pay tax to Caesar? He says, what? Give Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay the tax. Listen to the rules. Be a good citizen. As long as it doesn't contradict what God tells you, you live in. So this kind of idea is, and I want you to think through this, write this down. If you don't catch anything, catch this. Your character is your currency. Your character is your currency. Jesus doesn't want to fight with them about paying the tax. Why? Because he's going to fight with them that he is the son of God. He is the one who will take away their sins. That they are what Jesus will call them, you know, brood of vipers, ungodly, sons of the devil, right? Jesus is bringing very harsh truths to them. 
He doesn't want to fight about something that's not sin-related. It's not sinful in this temple tax. So he's like, we're going to pay it. And so he's literally saying, I will obey this rule, even though I don't have to, which is my rights not to, so that I can, because I know you're going to stumble over, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the only way your sins will be forgiven. So Jesus goes in, he tells Peter, hey, I want you to take the hook and I want you to throw it in the ocean. So for you fishermen, if he's throwing the hook, what's missing? The bait. Jesus is showing off, right? Jesus is saying, hey, I don't even need bait, right? I'm just going to throw this in. It's going to catch a fish. And in that fish is going to be what would be equal to two days wages. He says, there's the money. Go pay it. Again, what's he reminding them? I do miracles. I provide. I am God. Right? I am the son of God. That's my father's house. And so it's, again, gentle reminder. So he pays the tax because he knows well, I'm not going to fight with them, even though it's my right. I'm not going to fight with them because I'm going to fight with them later about the nature of sin, the nature of God, the nature of Christ, the nature of submitting to Christ's sovereignty. And so you see that all through the scripture, that we're to make allowances to help people in situations hear the gospel. We don't want our behavior to be an offensive stumbling block so they never get to hearing the gospel or hearing about Christ. Now, again, this is antithetical to what we think in the culture sometimes, is Jesus doesn't want me to talk about sin because that's offensive. But I can share my opinion and be harsh towards people. What you're seeing in this passage, you're saying, no, 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 no. I actually have the right, I'm going to give it up, because he knows he'll be offensive with the truth and with the gospel. Okay? If you look through some other New Testament passages, I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians 8, 13. He says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So meat isn't a sin issue. But he's saying if someone's struggling with me eating meat because it, was, it represents a sacrificed animal to a false god, I'm not going to fight with them about my right to eat steak. You know, you might see this in a Hindu setting where they worship cows and they think that that's a deity. They say, I'm not going to fight you with that. I'm going to fight you about Jesus. I'm going to fight you that there's only one God. And the only way to that God is through believing in Christ as the payment for your sins. I'm going to fight with them about that. So if I have to not eat meat, fine. I won't eat meat. Verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. This is Jesus not making use of the right. He doesn't have to pay the tax, but he's not going to make use of it. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So again, this is Jesus. I'm not going to put politics as an obstacle. I have to think Rome is in charge, all these things. I'm not going to put that. I'm not going to put food. I'm not going to put preferences of you know, cars, I'm not going to put preferences of social media platform, and whatever it is, we're not going to do it because we are going to be an offense when we get to, the, to Christ. Last verse here, it says, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And so what he's saying is I'll go through anything to help people hear the message of Christ. Now, what he's not saying is to the alcoholics, I became an alcoholic. To the heroin addict, I became a heroin addict. He doesn't match sin for sin so that he can have now share the gospel. That's not what he's getting at. 
He's saying, this doesn't matter, paying the tax. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to fight it. He waves his rights, waves his rights so that he might share the gospel with others. And so as we think through that, what it means to us is we want to make sure there's nothing in our character and our actions that cause people to not want to hear about Jesus. We don't get to fly 100 miles an hour down every road and say, I'm a Christian, I can do what I want. It's kind of the equivalent of it. I know only two or three of you do that, so stop. But that's the idea. I don't just get permission to do whatever I want. And that can ruin your witness. Obey, obey those laws because there is a stumbling block and that'll be Christ. So as he walks them through that, you now see, okay, he leaves this idea and we want to know that if we're going to have a stumbling block, that it'll be the gospel, be God's word, and then move right in there too. Now, but, but who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? Now, this is important. Why? Because right here, he just kind of get our behavior should not be the issue. And all of a sudden, what you're going to see here is, is behavior going to be the issue because they want to be the greatest. We're wired that way, aren't we? I mean, we're already talking about who's the greatest football team in a week, right? We already know the answer. I won't tell you. But we like to argue about that, right, and fight, and, and who can climb the highest mountain, and who can run the fastest, and who can go the furthest. Who is the greatest? That's within our nature. And here's what I want you to see in this text is he actually doesn't tell them it's wrong. He doesn't say there is no greatest. Stop talking about the greatest. He says, you guys don't understand who the greatest is. You have the wrong qualifications on who the greatest is. So Jesus, and what's interesting, in verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, they're saying, Jesus, who is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven? If you read other gospel accounts, they're not even speaking this. It says that they were wondering in their minds. They're sizing up the other, okay, well, Peter got to walk on water, but Peter also got called Satan, so maybe that's a wash, right? I was on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Like kind of going through it in their heads, and Jesus is like, all right, stop. We need to talk about who the greatest is because you guys don't get it. You don't understand. So they introduced this question into Jesus. And, and this is where it absolutely everything kind of just switches on its head and just, I think, would have completely caught them off guard. Calling to him, verse 2, a child, he put in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you, now catch these two words, turn and become, meaning you're not this way, turn Become, meaning you're not, so you need to become. So this is saying this is antithetical or this is not in our nature to be like this. Become like children. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he says, unless you, you will never. Those are pretty direct and harsh words, true? You will never enter the kingdom. This is that second part of the question. Who is Christ? What does it mean to be part of the kingdom? If you don't do this, you will not be a part of the kingdom. Now, let's think through this. Is he saying you need to be like a child in your intellect? No. Is he saying in your stature? No. Is he saying that you need to be ignorant? Like children are ignorant of a lot of things. No. Why? Because we know there's other passages where he says, grow in your faith. Do not be like a child. Do not be like an infant tossed to and fro. So what is he getting at? When you look at verse 4, he's getting, humble yourself like this child. So what's the humility of a child? Their utter dependence on their parents. As you have young children, let's say three and younger, 
It's annoying how dependent they are, isn't it? Right? They can't eat, they can't sleep, they can't get in the car, they can't go to bed, they can't do anything without a tug, a, you know, sometimes a firm hit, a shout, mom, 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 mom. You love that, right? Okay? And, and so what's interesting is that dependency, while, you know, earthly parents, you're like, I want you to cleave and now it's time to leave. Biblically saying, you're to stay cleaved. You're to stay dependent on Jesus. And that takes a humility. And we're saying you can't be saved unless you have that. Well, why is that? If you think, you know, as you get older, you ever notice somehow kids like trust you for everything and then all of a sudden you become the antitrust and everything's a conspiracy and how you're trying to ruin their life, right? And so it's saying as you grow up, there's this problem. Now it's like, I don't need you. And then there's this, oh, but I need money, right? So I can do it all and you just add some money. See, that's what happens in our faith sometimes. You're saying you're not a Christian if you think you do all the work and you just need Jesus to sprinkle some things on. Say so you're not going to be a part of the kingdom. You're only going to be a part of the kingdom if you realize you're totally, utterly dependent on Christ for salvation. This is why God tells Abraham, I will provide the sacrifice. You can't. Your son Isaac's not sufficient. This is why John the Baptist yells, behold, the lamb to take away the sins. Totally dependent on the father for the provision of sins, right? To make payment for your sins. Now, I want you to think through the beauty of, of what it's like how children trust us. And I think there's so much to this. We understand child and parent metaphors so well. And I think that's why the scripture is rich with them. Um, but this is truly what I think what he's getting at and why we need to be like children. I did this with all three of my kids. I had the same outcome on all three of them. I think they're about two or three years old and we go to the doctor to get those shots. You know, maybe they're younger. It's when they still get them in the legs. You know what I'm talking about? You sit them down and you like hold their ankles. And so they're sitting there and I'm holding their ankles. And I'm looking at them dead in the eyes. And the nurse comes in, bam, 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 staring them in the eyes. No tears, get up, walk out. Everything's fine. I was like, yes. Fast forward five years later, we're crying before we even get to the doctor, right? What happened? They gained their own experience, their own ideas, and there became a distrust. See, when they're little, if dad's fine, I'm fine. Dad's not worried, I shouldn't be worried. That's how simple the trust is. Then they get older and one of their friends said, I, they tried to kill me when I went there. Well, I don't want to go to the doctor. I'm not going there. All of a sudden, there's this misinformation and trust, and they're like, I ain't going anywhere with you. And it's like, you're crying, and you haven't even been there. And last time, you were younger, and you were fine. You see, as we grow, there becomes this natural kind of separation of trust. And he's saying, the best, the greatest thing you can do is be like the little child that wholly trusts the father and mother. They're dependent on them for food. They're dependent on them for survival. They're dependent on them for information. Totally and utterly dependent. He's saying that is who is great in the kingdom of heaven. Those that are utterly dependent on Christ. And so he's not saying that there won't be greatness. He's qualifying what greatness is. And he's saying you're going to have to turn and become. It's not natural for us to want to depend on Jesus in that way. 
It's not natural. We think, oh, I got marriage figured out. I have finances figured out. I got parenting figured out. I got my job figured out. And then when I get really, really, really a lot of trouble, then I'll ask Jesus. He's like, no, 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 no. You need to be totally and utterly dependent. You see, and we call that good parenting, right? We call it good parenting. So think through this. When you see a kid, I don't know if you guys have ever done this. Maybe it's just me. I'm, I'm weird. Usually, like, I'll see a little kid. I'll try to, like, give him something. And it doesn't matter if it's like a lollipop or celery. There's a kind of kid that always says, wait, I have to ask my mom. Doesn't matter if it's healthy or bad. They're like, I got to go ask my mom because they know I need permission in order to do this. And you know clearly that kid lives underneath authority. In the same way, I would ask the question, do people look at your life and say, that is one who lives under the authority of another? the authority of Scripture, the authority of Christ? Or does your life reflect that you don't need to ask anybody to do anything, anytime, anywhere, because you are living your best life? Because you only live once. And the apex of your humanity is to do and feed your desires. Or do they look at you and say, man, you're always going back. Why? I got to go to my Bible. You know, I got to pray about that. I got to talk to some other brothers and sisters in Christ about that. I am one that lives under authority in the same way a child lives under authority. Now, here's what's interesting. We call this good parenting when you teach a kid not to touch a hot stove or put a fork in a light socket, right? But when the Bible tells you what marriage is, how you should spend your money, and how you should treat people, that's called intolerance. That's hypocrisy, isn't it? God the Father can't tell you how to be, but you can tell your kids how to be. This is why the the parenting language is so beautiful. It's like, no, the most loving thing you can do is to tell them the truth, teach them the right thing so that they're not in harm. This is why Jesus progresses in this. I want you to think about this. He says, whoever receives, I'm in verse five, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. He's saying, these are my children, the ones who have made this turn, the ones who have made this change. They've become like, they're mine. And when you receive them, you receive me. We get that. When someone's mean to your kid, it's as if they were mean to you. Isn't it true? You take that personal. If you don't come talk to me, we need to talk. Okay? In the same way, how do you feel when something happens to your kid and someone else is there to take care of them? When there's a scraped knee or they get lost or they're, you know, something falls apart and another adult comes and takes care of your child and helps them and puts the band-aid on and helps them get to where they need to go. You're grateful, aren't you? It's as if they did it to you. This is the language he's using in the text. I want you to look at other Christians and receive them as you would receive me. They're my children. I care how they're treated. As a parent, one of the most annoying things is when your own kids fight against each other, isn't it? You're like, you come from the same blood. Knock it off. Just get along. And then when they do get along, it's like you just want to stop time and enjoy it, right? Just take it in. This is how it should be. There's something blissful and beautiful when you see the family behaving in the way that it should. This is what Jesus is getting at. When you see them, receive them as me. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're children too. The ones 
that have turned and become like children, have humbled themselves and put themselves under the authority of the king and God as the father, receive them. You're of the same family. That's why it's so important when we get missionaries, we host them, we love them, and we celebrate them because they're brothers and sisters in Christ just in different parts of the world. We receive them as if Christ himself is there. Okay, So he's walking through them. This is what it means to be the greatest. Okay? Paul presses this point on us in his later writings. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Um, Paul says, but he, meaning Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So here's the thing, and I don't want you to get mixed up in, in these metaphors. You are to grow in your faith, in knowledge, knowledge of God, knowledge of Christ, you are to grow in that way. You see, but sometimes knowledge puffs up because it makes us think we can now operate outside of Christ. You see, but the correlation should be is the more I learn about God, the more I depend on God. Uh, I had a professor once tell me, you know, he was like 60, he was really old when I was 18. And we were kind of like, we were asking it through the lens of like, you're so old, like, do you still read your Bible? You know, like, do you know it all now? And because you're old? And he's like, nope, I read more now than ever. And we're like, what? Oh, he's probably old and forgetting. That's why. He's like, no. Nope. He said, the more I know, the more I know that I don't know. You can follow the double negative there, right? The more I learn, the more I learn I don't know anything. It's kind of he's getting at. That's that same concept. The more you learn about God, the more you should learn how amazing he is how sinful we are, and then how much more we need Christ. This is what happens Paul through his writings, his early writings, I'm a sinner. His middle writings, oh man, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a big sinner. His last writings, I am the chief, I am the worst sinner that ever lived. Because as he's learning about God, he's seeing his perfection, his powerfulness, he's all-knowing, his mercy, his grace, and he's like, oh my gosh, in comparison to that, I'm terrible. So Paul sees this. He's like, I have nothing to boast about except Christ. So I boast about Christ. This is now what you're seeing is the greatest. He puts himself literally in the position of a child and says, I am nothing without Christ. Read Philippians. He walks through that. Okay. So we, we see how important that is. Dependent on Christ, you're the greatest. And you will receive each other in this way. It's as if we're receiving Jesus. Now, boom, six, verse six. This is where it gets heavy. This is where it gets heavy because he's still talking about his kids. Okay, verse six. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. He's talking about protecting the faith. You gotta protect the children. You gotta protect the children of God. Notice he qualifies it, little ones who believe. So that's little children or people new in Christ, right? Infants in Christ. They're believing, but still little in their faith. And so he puts this qualifier out there. We are to protect them, and he gives a warning to anyone who would help cause them to sin. 
Now, this is why we go verse by verse through our Bible. Because there's people, they only want to talk about Jesus' love and his free-flowing hair and peace and all these things. This does not communicate that, does it? This is, if you mess with my kids, you're going to get in trouble. That's a parent. That's a good parent, isn't it? These are my children. And if you mess with them, you're getting a millstone around the neck. And it's better for you, actually, to do that. Anytime Jesus says it's better for you, it's really not. It's really not. You read through it. He's like, it's better for you to never have been born. You're like, wait, that's really bad. He's like, exactly. Exactly. I want you to catch a picture of this. Okay. This is what they would use to kind of press, you know, olive oil, different things. I, I, I spent too much time looking this up. Let's say anywhere from two to 400 pounds. Some of them are so big, they'd have a donkey to pull it because men couldn't push it because it'd be so heavy. So imagine Jesus saying, there's something you can do that is so bad that it would be better for you to tie that around your neck and go sink in the ocean. And I want you to think through, this isn't like you just, you get vaporized. You're going to have a weight so heavy that you can't swim up. And you're just going to fall through water, either drowning or the weight of the water will crush your bones until you die. And he's saying, that's the good thing. That's the better thing, because it'd be better for you to do that. So here's the great news for us this morning, is God loves his children. And he says, you do not cause them to sin. You don't lead them into sin. Now, why is that important? And why is that probably more important now than ever? Because when you have a philosophy that says, children, pick your gender. You can do whatever you want. You are leading them astray and into sin. When you tell them, you can, you can believe whatever you want to believe. All roads lead to heaven. You are lying to them. And God says you are to not do that. Not to do that to the little kid. Not to do that to the new believer. Those are his kids. You tell them the truth. There's one way to God. It is through Jesus. God created you male and female. Marriages between a man and a woman. You're to not commit adultery. You are to honor your father. Think through all the things in the Bible. Teach them the truth. If someone was bringing harm upon your kid, you would take it serious. True or false? True. So does God. He takes it very serious. So then what's the greatest thing we can do? Teach your kids the Bible. Teach your kids. This is what God says. And you don't always have to sit them down and read verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. Hey, Ephesians 4.29 says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. God says we don't do that. We don't do that. We don't look at those images. We don't believe that's what God says marriage is. It's the most loving thing you could do. See, this is why Jesus earlier is saying, don't give an offense. Why? Because you're going to give an offense when you tell them what the word of God actually says. It's going to be offensive. It's going to hurt their feelings. It's going to tear down their ideologies and their idols. It's going to, it's going to break and shatter the things that medicate their insecurities. So that's why he's saying, don't let your character be an offense. So as you're thinking through, going through election season and all of these things, don't let your character 
be an offense. Let the fact that you believe Jesus is the only way to God be the offense. That's offensive enough. So when you think through teaching your children, what are you teaching them through your character? Is permissible and unpermissible? What are you teaching them about life? And here's the thing, you might have your kids in, you know, sports or school or an activity and you're like, they're being taught all kinds of crazy things. God says, I will deal with that person. Says it right there. What you need to do is teach them the proper things. Teach them the proper things. Teach them what the word of God says. Okay. But also teach them how to wrestle through these things. I think sometimes we just tell kids, believe this, stop talking. Don't want to talk about it. The kid's like, well, what do I do with that? You talk it out with them. But here's the thing about parenting, and it's the same thing true here scripturally. There are going to be some things in the scripture you just can't wrap your arms all the way around. It's going to be really, really hard. Like, how is God all-powerful, all-knowing, completely sovereign, but like we have human responsibility in salvation. Like how do those two reconcile? And like I can, I can press into that a lot, but there comes a point where I'm just like, my head can't do it. And I have to say, I just, I just trust the Father. I, just, I trust the Father. It's what the Bible says. I trust him. And it's okay to press as far as I can into that. Here's my, here's my point. You can have the fight with your kids about eating healthy, eating vegetables, eating their meat, whatever it is. These are the proteins and here's, you know, your bone growth and you don't want to stunt your growth and you want to have energy and you can press and press. But at the end of the day, a decision has to be made. You're eating or you're going to die because I'm going to kill you, right? Like the decision is made. You're going to do this. You're going to trust me whether you like it or not. Eat the food. It's good. The decision has to be made at some point. The parent wins. At some point, God has to win in this deliberation. He's the father, I'm the child, I trust him. There's a heaven, there's a hell, not everybody goes to heaven. Marriage is between a man and a woman. I'm not to be an adulterer, I'm not to be a drunkard, I'm not to be a drug user, I'm to be a good citizen, I'm to pay my taxes. I don't get it all, but I, I, trust, I trust the father. See, that's where you help your kids. How do you trust the father? Now, the beautiful thing is you have great reason to trust the Father because he demonstrated his love through the Son, through Jesus. He goes to the cross and bears the wrath of God in our place. So you have great reason to trust God when it's hard. Great reason to tell other people to trust God when it's hard. See, this is what he's getting at. I am the king. You are the children in the kingdom. Protect the kingdom. Protect the children. And then later on in Matthew, I'll go share with everyone you can what it's like to be a part of the kingdom. To have a father that loves you perfectly, that pays for your sin, gives you heaven as your home, and gives you the church as his family. Go share that with everybody. And anyone that messes with my children, I will deal with them. It's a comforting message, isn't it? Okay, some things for us to think through. What is the difference between giving offense because of the gospel and giving offense by not being considerate, okay? This is, this is utterly important, okay? When we're offensive because of the gospel, Jesus warns us. 
They will hate you. They will persecute you. Read Matthew 15. He offends them, offends them, offends them, offends them. But he offends them with the truth. He doesn't offend them with his preferences, temple tax, what emperor should be in charge. Jesus just pays the tax. Okay, So there's, there's offense through preferential, non-essential things. It's like, don't let that be the stumbling block. Let the stumbling block be Christ crucified. God's word, God's morality. Two, what are some commands in the Bible that are offensive? Know them, learn them, and understand they will cost you at some point. And at the end of the day, you need to trust the Father. Three, in what way should you be like a child? In, in what way should you not? You want to be like a child in the fact that you're totally dependent on Christ through prayer, through scripture reading, through talking to him about all the facets of your life, totally dependent. You don't want to be a child in the fact that you're completely ignorant and you have no clue and you never grow spiritually. In that sense, you don't want to be a child. Okay? Four, what are some ways you struggle to depend on Jesus? What are some things that you never pray about? Is it your finances? Is it your marriage? Is it a relationship between estranged children or a sibling or parents? Is it, is it having vengeance and hate? What is it? There's something you just, you don't like. You don't want to give that part over to Jesus. You don't want to trust his commands. Yeah, work through that. Five, what are some ways that you could be leading others astray? What are maybe some stumbling blocks through your behavior that are causing people to say, if that's what a Christian is, I'm not interested? Right? Through gossip, slander, hate, vile, jealousy, rage, lack of compassion, whatever it is. Right? Your character is your currency. Six, what is the best way to de demonstrate a childlike faith? I think the easy answer is to demonstrate you live a life underneath authority. The authority of scripture, the authority of God's word, it reigns over you and it guides you in all facets of your life, just like a kid who's under the authority of their parents. It's good, it's healthy, it's loving, it's kind, and it's what's best. This is how God is preparing his disciples through Jesus to go out and live into the world. And we'll get there next week about temptation and coming down. He's preparing them. Look, you have a father and he's going to protect you. He's going to be with you. Take great comfort. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We're thankful that we could be called your children because of Jesus. Um, it's our prayer that we would just move into a time of communion and celebrate you, celebrate the work of Christ, um, celebrate the example, um, the suffering that he did in our place. Pray that we would have great thankfulness and awareness for what Christ did. Meet with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, this is a great text to go into communion um, because it hits the heart of, you know, do I have a childlike faith? Do I utterly trust Jesus in all facets of my life? And the areas that I'm not, I'm sinning. 
And the cross reminds us we have great reason to trust Jesus. He takes our punishment, God's wrath, in our place, right? Bible says there's no greater love than a man who lays down his life for another. Jesus lays down his life for us. So we have great reason to trust him, great reason to listen to him, and great reason to model our life after him. So communion is is exactly that. It's a great reminder. It's a great symbol. It's not an act of salvation, um, but it is something we at LBC would say is something Christians do. So if you're not a Christian, you, you know, don't partake, but pray, you know, maybe pray to God. Say, you know, are you a sinner that realizes you need a savior? You've sinned against the holy God and you would like to maybe see Jesus be the payment for that sin. Pray through that. Come talk to us after. There'll be elders down in the front. Um, but for those of you that are Christians, you put your faith and trust. Um, you always want to start through remembering, you know, the bread symbolizes his body broken. The juice is his blood poured out. You want to open the bread first so that you don't spill the juice trying to open the bread. But as you do that, and you prepare your heart, communion should always start with, God, how have I sinned against you? And you have this you know, great passage, how have I not humbled myself? How have I not trusted you? And in Matthew, it talks about being a citizen of heaven, that sin is in the heart and it's with the hands. In the heart, you know, we have greed and lust and anger and vengeance and we covet. And then outwardly, we, we gossip, we steal, you know, we fight. There's all these things we do. So in, in both measurements, with your hands and in your heart, these are the ways I've sinned against you, God. I, I didn't trust my father. Forgive me of that sin. And then we know First John tells us that if we confess, he is faithful to forgive. And so then you take your communion, you take the bread, you take the juice, knowing you're forgiven. So you start off in confession and you end in celebration. I'm forgiven. He loves me. I'm his. He's my father. And at such time, John's going to come and lead us in a great time of celebration, thanking Jesus that he made a way for us to be a part of the family. Ephesians 1 made a way for God to adopt us through Christ, the expensive, expensive adoption, the blood of Jesus. And so we'll celebrate that together. I'm going to pray, and you can go on your own time, and then John will lead us. Dear Jesus, we thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. We thank you for modeling the perfect life. We thank you for bearing the wrath of God. We thank you for rising from the dead three days later, showing that death could not hold you and sin could not beat you. You rose, conquering both, giving us access to the Father by grace through faith. Pray that we would have a gratefulness in our heart for that work. We would reflect on our sin and celebrate your work and our forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.